Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I'm speaking with Akshar from The Emissary about an article he published early this year about critical caste theory, as well as the activists who view Hinduism, Hindu culture, and India's history and contemporary society through this very narrow lens, creating a picture of all of these that is, well, charitably very narrow, and really is thoroughly distorted and incomplete. Akshar explains it better than I do, so here we go. Enjoy. So thanks so much for joining us today. We're here to talk about an article I read several months ago. It's very apropos today because as we record this, California's CAS bill, SB 403, is probably going to be signed in the next couple of days. So the issue of caste, or what is in English known as caste, we'll probably get into that a little bit about how that came into being. Um, is in the forefront of a lot of people's minds in a way that it probably wasn't before. So the article in question that you wrote on The Emissary, Critical Caste Theory, A Dubious Discourse. So many many listeners have probably heard of critical race theory. How does this differ from other efforts to take on caste discrimination or differing in the discussion of caste? I would say, similar to critical race theory, it's difficult to define, but when you see it, you know what it is. Um, but I'll try to define it here. So I would say it's multiple levels. It first starts off with characterizing Indian society across the entirety of its region, across the entirety of its history as a static caste pyramid. And, you know, most people have probably seen the, you know, classic pyramid, Brahmin at top, Chatriya underneath them. Vaishya underneath that, Shudra, and then sometimes they include untouchable. You know, it's basically like the food pyramid, but with people. And it's, uh, that's, that's their bread and butter. So at every HR conference, at every um, lecture, they're going to show this pyramid and be like, this is what India is, this is what it has been, and this is what it's going to be in the future, unless we you know, dismantle, sometimes they'll say dismantle caste, but sometimes, especially recently, they'll be a lot more forward about what they're talking about. And this is the second level. They say they want to dismantle Brahminism. Now, what's Brahminism? And this is a section where it's really cloudy, it's very murky, and intentionally so. So I believe the term Brahminism comes from Jesuit missionaries who visited India maybe, I don't know, like the 1500s or 1400s around there. And they use it to describe Indian society. And how do they do that? At least where they were. I believe it was Goa or I don't know, somewhere maybe on the West Coast. They described Brahminism as a system where, you know, the Brahmins are on top. They enforce all their values and their culture onto other people. And the society around them is tooled to simply benefit them. So basically, they dominate society in a total way. Now, a lot of times they'll do this kind of bait and switch where they will switch. Brahminism is spelled B-R-A-H-M-I-N-I-S-M. Now, Brahmin is, of course, the caste. But if you do Brahman, instead of the I, you do A, B-R-A-H-M-A-N. They also change the spelling to that, Brahmanism. Brahman is simply, you know, you could say it's a word for Godhead in Hinduism. So they'll frequently switch between these two. 
and they do it intentionally. They do it to, you know, equivocate these, these two terms. Um, they will describe ancient Hinduism as Brahmanism, uh, in a way to kind of put this in your head that, okay, this religion, all it is, is Brahmins mind controlling people. I'm not a Brahmin myself. Uh, so I, I think I could talk about this pretty freely. Um, and it's pretty ridiculous, especially once you start seeing the history of India and even let's just do demographic percentages. Today, Brahmins are about like 3%. Um, and let's, I think accurately across all of India, Indian history, you could say that probably, you know, three to 10% of the society at the time across the regions, of course, they vary. To say this group of people basically mind control and dominate and oppress, terribly oppress, uh, they frequently compare caste to like antebellum slavery um, in the South and the Confederacy. To say that they did this for, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, whatever you want to say, it's kind of crazy. Eventually people would rebel. And this is where, you know, caste becomes a lot different than that pyramid that you'll see in these, you know, lectures and HR meetings. So I think it's, it's that one, two punch essentially, Hey, there's this caste pyramid and two it's controlled by Brahmins and, you know, that's all Hinduism is. It's just oppression. And, you know, there's no real diversity in Hinduism. It's just, you know, Brahmanism. So yeah, I'd say that's, that's the best way for me to explain what critical caste theory is. The lack of diversity that's being yeah. put, put out there to me is, is very interesting because I've heard some people say, and I don't know if this is the, necessarily the best way of describing it. They, they would say that Hinduism doesn't exist, but they're Hinduism, meaning that there are so many strands and things that play into what we call Hinduism today, different, different lineages, different sampradaya, different takes on all of this, that the flattening to this Brahmanism, it, it seems, it becomes even more absurd to me. Um, and you, and you talked, touched on there and people on different, um, social groups rising up later on and we'll get to that, but who are the main people proposing this today? What are the main proponents? Who are the players? And, uh, please go into that a little bit. So I would say it is kind of memed into existence right now. I think in the past there were definitely, um, movements against caste discrimination that, I mean, they had a lot of like righteousness and value to them. Um, and you can do it on two dimensions. One on the spiritual, which was across Hindu or Indian history, across various different uh, dharmas or punts. And this is something that a lot of people don't really understand is like, okay, if you want a religion that demonstrates the most um, backlash or rebellion or, you know, trying to fix caste discrimination, it's essentially Hinduism. Um, and we could talk about that a bit later, but more onto the point of, you know, who's making this caste, critical caste theory a thing. This is where we go into the more, I don't know, material or political aspects of fighting caste discrimination. So obviously the, the reason, you know, people like Dr. Ambedkar or the Fules or various other reformers around colonial times and going into the early Republic of India, they did something in that they they wanted to make it a point that um, caste discrimination needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed right now. Many times they do that with education, um, you know, a lot agitating for 
lower caste people to be part of, say, you know, or coming into certain Hindu temples um, and just in general, stopping oppression and discrimination. This is all righteous. This is all right. Um, And I think in general, all Indians and Hindus are pretty much on board with a lot of these movements to stop this type of discrimination. When it becomes critical caste theory, I think it does build upon some of the stuff that Ambedkar talked about. And of course, later um, activists against caste. But this takes it to another level where it's almost like too extreme. Um, it, it twists history and it's used in a political way. So I think the roots of it today mainly come from, I'd say, NGOs. Uh, let's just say like Equality Labs is probably the number one. Um, I think flag bearer of this. It has adjacent NGOs to it. Um, a lot of these NGOs are also connected to certain governments. Um, like uh, basically state departments of all different countries. I think this is where a lot of it comes from. And then it kind of bleeds into um, academia as well, where you have like this circular peer review going on where, you, you know, that they find certain academics or professors that are sympathetic to their cause. They write up some paper, they refer to someone dubious, and then, you know, start, th- this is what starts the wheel. So they'll always have material, even if it's not necessarily, you know, too pure or has a good pedigree. And this is just how, how they keep doing it. They just self-refer to themselves. And then they team up with usually people in India. Um, it, I don't, and this is a thing. I think the path of it is basically people from India left India. They incubated this theory outside of India. And now they're trying to export it back into India. And that, this is what you see in current Indian politics today. If anyone follows it, they'll know about Hindutva, but what they, what they don't know about is Jatitva. And this is something you may hear uh, later on in the election cycle. Um, but it's basically trying to make it a thing that each caste just fights for themselves in a zero-sum contest. And that's, I think, the real one of the end goals of critical caste theory, a lot of why these NGOs are very active in India, why they work with a lot of the academia across borders is to make this a thing, make this idea that Hinduism doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of castes mm-hmm. and it's a power play and it's a oppression play between different castes, usually mainly, you know, blaming the upper caste and Brahmins and stuff. You mentioned Hindu reformers on cast before one thing that i hear from the likes of quality labs the likes of or people in that ideology it's beyond them uh there as you say there there are a number of organizations that we could lump in with them what i seem to hear either stated stated explicitly or just implied or overlooked are these hindu caste reformers historically and reforms from within the tradition the broad tradition itself or listeners that don't know, what are the names of some of these people? And what, what should people be looking out for? I realize there are many. So if you had to pick a few. Yeah, I think um, one group. Hmm, there's so many to pick from. So I think one of the ones that first come into my head is probably Ramanuja. And Ramanuja is actually Brahmin. And you'll see this frequently happening across uh, 
you know, these cases of discrimination is that usually there is always an upper caste person who, you know, helps the lower caste because they realize the ideas of, say, the Athman or Bhakti, um, these ideas of equality that you can source from, you know, scriptures like the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or, you know, the Srimad Bhagavatam, various Hindu scriptures. I, I think one thing people don't realize is just like we have big debates about religion and politics today, there were also those thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago in India. Um, so one of the first ones I would say is Ramanuja. And, you know, he is the founder of Vishishta Advaita um, philosophy or Vedanta. And he really cultivated bhakti or devotion as a way for upliftment. And there's multiple stories in his life where the society basically discriminates against some of these lower caste people, but he breaks a lot of boundaries and borders in terms of integrating them into society, venerating them, um, praising them, and trying to make people realize that, hey, you know, in each of us, there is the same Atman. We worship the same God. And these types of material discriminations, they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't really exist. Um, that being said, at his time, there was still caste. You know, they, a lot of these reformers, they push, but they don't like, you know, totally push it out of the way. Um, they're reformers instead of revolutionaries. But the reason why I guess I call out Ramanuj is because he really sparks a lot of this. And you see in his line, um, his Guru Parampara or his, you know, disciple line, as well as his message, as it spreads uh, north, since he comes from Tamil Nadu, as it spreads across India, you have examples of people like uh, Ravi Das, who comes from an untouchable caste in Varanasi. And his guru is Ramananda, again, another Brahmin. And their dynamic. Another one is uh, Dhyaneshwar. He's in Pandarpur, I believe, in uh, Maharashtra. And he, he redefines the worship of, you know, the local god there, uh, Vitala, who is seen as a form of Vishnu. And he, he basically creates this line of these great, you know, quote-unquote lower caste saints like Namdev, Chokamela, uh, Janabai, Tukaram, all these people, and many more. You have all these different names, and they're basically wiped from memory by a lot of these critical caste theorists. Or in some cases, and I, I would say in a nefarious way, they're seen as non-Hindu. And if you read their works, if you listen to their poetry, hear their songs, I mean, they're praising Hindu gods, you know? They're talking about the same stories in the Mahabharata and the Ramayan as some guy, I, I don't know, as like the most learned Brahmin and, or super hyper-Orthodox Brahmin would in, you know, a debate. These people are still part of the same religion, but they interpret it differently. I realize in this, we've, uh, we've both used the term caste, which is a variation of a Portuguese word originally. For listeners, what is the nutshell history of that? How, why are we calling this caste when we should, when that's made up of multiple factors, multiple different categorizations and classifications within in Indian society? Can you just, I realize it's a little bit of a diversion from critical caste theory. And we define critical caste theory, but we didn't talk about what is caste itself. Can you just give listeners just that little bit? Sure, yeah. So I, I guess we could first start off with two points. Firstly, uh, 
when was, you know, caste really observed in Indian society? There's some historical, I think it comes from genetic evidence that uh, there may have been a caste-like system in the Indus Valley, uh, in the Indus Valley civilization. So that's the first point. And I think that's a bit more nebulous. But we start to see a word called Varna observed in the Vedas. Now, this is another bait and switch you'll frequently hear. They talk about a verse called the Purusha Sukta. And what it says is, I'm paraphrasing, but it says out of, you know, Godhead or, you know, God himself, this primordial Purusha, they call it, came the Brahmins from the head, the Kshatriya from the arm, the Vaishya from the thighs, and the Shudra from the feet. So in this, uh, in this way, they'll just stop. They stop at this verse. It's much longer, but they stop right here. And then they say, this is how, you know, this is the oppression pyramid. You know, we can draw it out right here. Um, and it's been like this forever. This is the oppression of the ages. But the point of the Purusha Sukta is actually to show that, you know, these Varnas, they come from God and they're divine. So humans themselves are divine. And the Purusha Sukta keeps going on and it talks about different aspects of the world. So it says the moon comes from Purusha's mind, the sun from his eyes, the earth from his feet, and so on. So the point of the Purusha Shakta isn't <laughs> oppression. It's just saying, you know, humanity and this universe and this world, it comes from, you know, this divine creator. So that's where we first heard here Varna. Now, how Varna was back in the day, how endogamous it was in terms of people marrying each other. People um, marrying out of their Varna, different Varnas across Varnas. I think, I mean, genetically, we could tell there was a good amount of mixing. Um, we could see in some scriptures, they suggest people to do endogamy. Some are a lot more forceful than others. But in general, I think most ancient scriptures would suggest endogamy. That being said, genetically, we see a calcification around like 500 CE, give or take, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred years. So technically for most of Indian history, there was a lot of mixing going on and this endogamy or Varna, I don't, we can't really say necessarily how strong it was. So that's one aspect of caste. The second is Jati. And this is, I think, much closer to the caste today. Jati in function is like an ethnic group. Um, these jatis, they have, there's probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them across India. And they all, they either fit into these four varnas or sometimes they don't necessarily fit too well. Um, and we could talk about how untouchability came about as well a bit later. But um, yeah, these, all these mini little castes, these subcasts, these jatis, they all have their own rituals. They sometimes they have their special gods that they worship more than others. They have certain cultural aspects to them. So in function, they are an ethnic group. And this is where endogamy matters a lot more than I'd say Varna. Because to really preserve these traditions and these rituals, you usually need to marry people who also observe them. And this is what we see of caste today. So there, yeah, I would say between Jati and Varna, that, that's the best way to describe caste. What, what then? You mentioned how did untouchability come into this um please go into that there i've read some really interesting things analysis of the british census 
censuses. That's such a hard word to say, isn't it? Censuses. Um, Talking about untouchability and how it was much more complex than were, than has been presented in some sort of top down way. There were, my understanding is that there were some groups that were considered untouchable by other castes, but were practiced untouchability among themselves. And it's just, it's a complex situation. But before we, you know, and before any of that, how did that actually come to be? Sure. So a lot of times you'll describe, or not you, but people would describe Dalits as outside of the caste system and they've always been. Uh, they'll describe them as Avarna. This is also used in the scriptures, the word Avarna. Um, and it's made to seem like they were always outside of the Hindu fold. Some people say they weren't even Hindu. And I mean, like I said, Ravidas, as well as many other um, Dalit saints, this isn't necessarily true. I mean, this isn't really true at all, to be honest. But how did it come about? So if you look at uh, the Purusha it only mentioned four Varnas. Later on, you will see some of these quote-unquote jatis emerge from these Varnas. One of them is, I think it's called the Chandalas. And they were initially called Chudras at first, but somewhere along the line, probably over the course of a millennium, maybe say around 500 uh, CE or uh, I don't know, maybe like 1 CE, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact date, but definitely later, and I'll explain why, they started to be described as Avarna and outside even Shudras. And this is where some of this ritualism and caste calcification really starts taking shape. And from then on, you know, you will have some of these untouchable castes. And like you said, say even within the Dalit community, certain Dalit Varna or Avarna, whatever you want to describe it as, you will have Jathis practicing untouchability against each other. So, okay, we have that. Why do I say we could definitely say it started a bit later? Well, I've read a lot of primary accounts from, say, Greeks, Romans, Chinese, uh, Turks, as well as many others. But let's focus on the Greeks and the Chinese and Romans, because they were some of the earlier people who came to India. The Greeks really didn't describe castes like that. And they probably came to India starting around maybe 400, 300 BC uh, with a lot of stuff up till maybe 300 CE or 500 CE. They don't really describe caste as a super, I don't know, rigid part of society. I think Megasthenes or Ariana, um, I believe that, or Arian, sorry. Uh, they, one of the two in their text, Indica, they describe a seven-tier system, but it's not really described as like, oh my God, you know, this is so unique or anything like that. To them, this was just another hierarchy. And this is another thing that critical caste theorists try to do. They try to make it seem that like this caste system was a rigid hierarchy across all the time and space in India. And it was very unique. But like being born in a lower caste or even sometimes a middle caste uh, or class across any type of society, whether it's, you know, the Mayans, the Olmecs, the Vikings, uh, I, I don't know, like the English, um, the Greeks, Persians, Chinese in the Tin Dynasty, whichever, if you're born in a lower strata society, you know, life sucked. It was terrible. You know, this is one of the great parts about today in modernity, that there's so much more opportunity and mobility versus prior. So, yeah, I I would say we don't see as much commentary on castes with the Greeks. 
when the Chinese come though, and this is another interesting part we could talk about because a lot of these people, they, they were Buddhist pilgrims and they go to Indian societies and they see how religion was practiced. And it was pretty mixed. I mean, secretism is a very natural part of, you know, Indian history and Indian religion, but they would notice in even predominantly Buddhist areas, there would be untouchability. And some of these first untouchables they would describe as say hunters or people who lived outside the city and they would come in to say, sell meat or sell forage goods. This is one of the first examples of a foreigner seeing untouchability. Um, there is verses about untouchability in certain scriptures, but like I've said, you know, there was a vibrant debate about what caste was in ancient India, just as there is today, possibly even more vibrant back then because it was all formulating. But, uh, yeah, I would say because of primary accounts, we could start really seeing when it happened and it wasn't necessarily, you know, the super ancient phenomenon. Of course, these Buddhist pilgrims from China were coming to the land where Buddhism was founded, where it arose. And in your piece, you know, you, you have an interesting section on Buddhism in relation to caste. And I think it's apropos both within the internal workings of the piece, but also because so many, a number of people in India fled Hinduism or their background into Buddhism for its supposed casteless nature. So can you, you go into that? You know, it's some people will say that Buddhism was founded using your words as a lower caste revolution against Brahminical orthodoxy. But you actually say that, you know, Buddhism has not quite the clean record as it sometimes made out to be. So why is that? Yeah. So I would say, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Jainism, you know, these three religions, as well as maybe a few smaller ones like the Ajivikas and the Jaravakas and stuff. At that period, let's just say, I like to call it the Axial Age, around, uh, I don't know, like 500 or 600 BC to 500 AD or something like that. Just a rough, rough estimate around there. A lot of these religions were mixing and they would take elements from each other and borrow freely. Religion was very syncretic. Uh, that's why you'll see it's hard to even find a real word for religion as we know it today in Sanskrit or, or Prakrit of that era. So one thing is these religions were of their society and people were definitely observing Jati back then. Um, like I said, this tribal ethnic group type uh, thing where people marry within each other. They do their own customs and so so forth. There was also Varna, of course, observed. But like I said earlier, you can't really say how endogamous they were. Okay. Now, when it comes to Buddhism, I think um, Bedkar, I don't know if anyone else, I, I think maybe some colonial writers, they did this on purpose. They described Buddhism as like a, uh, like a lower caste uprising. But in Buddhist scripture, and even, you know, the Buddha's life, we see this really isn't the case. Buddhism is just like, you know, any other religion. It's about the self. In some cases, it's about the community. It's about theology, mythology. It's not really like a social justice revolution or even a reform. And you'll see in certain Buddhist scriptures how bodhisattvas, you know, these incarnations of these Buddhist gods, 
or even Buddhas themselves, they would only be born in Brahmin and Kshatriya lineages. And there are some scriptures that argue against intercaste marriage uh, at the time. Um, you will see another phenomenon, and this is, I guess, more into society and economics. Since Buddhism was, it was focused on monks, essentially. Initially, it was a religion of just monks. And these monks started spreading their faith. And these ascetics would travel across India and eventually form monasteries. Now, where would monasteries be? Either they would be in cities or they'd be constructed at a place which would attract a lot of economy around it and eventually, you know, grow into a city. You, these monasteries were places of both spirituality, science, as well as, you know, they, some of them grew very rich. They accumulated a lot of knowledge. So you started to see this phenomenon where Buddhism became not only an urban faith, uh, but also it was kind of a faith that dominated many upper castes. And this is something like a lot of these critical casters, they wouldn't really acknowledge. And the reason it was because of the upper caste was because of, you know, either scriptural things or the monasteries would only allow upper caste people to become ascetics. And another thing about Buddhism that I think critical caste theorists try to posit it as, as is like an attack at Brahmins. This is how you know they didn't, you know, these people aren't Buddhists or they don't read Buddhist scripture. One of the most famous Buddhist scriptures ever is called the Dhammapada. One chapter is all it does is talk about the Brahmin and how the Brahmin has so many great qualities. And even when you see these Chinese Buddhists come to Indian society and Indian look at, you know, these Hindu Buddhist societies, which are essentially mixed. It's really hard to even call a society Hindu or Buddhist in, in, in India, but they would notice uh, Brahmins, you know, doing their Vedic rituals next to Buddhist kings. Uh, they would see Buddha along with other Hindu gods and temples. They would see Brahmins uh, as aesthetics um, very frequently as Buddhist monks. So this whole thing was very, very mixed. Um, Brahmins were still important because, you know, they were essentially vehicles of knowledge and they still had a lot of cultural capital. Um, it, it really wasn't that much conflict. The thing I will give, though, is because Buddhism moved away from the importance of the Vedas themselves and a lot of, say, the Vedic sacrifice, this did reduce the importance of Brahmins. So in places where Buddhism was dominant, Brahmins weren't as important. And this is where, you know, you'll see some of the really snippets of conflict rather than, you know, this huge, say, almost like Protestant Catholic war that is supposed to envelop India, but never did. That's one of the reasons you'll see this conflict between, say, you know, Buddhist scholars who don't place as much primacy on Brahmins versus, say, Hinduism of that era in where, you know, Brahmins were very important just because of cultural reasons or religious reasons. Your piece concludes with a statement that I think is a great place to end this particular episode. You state that history is heterodoxy. So let's go into that. You know, the complexity of caste relations historically, you hinted at a little bit of this. You point out that traditionally Brahmins were expected to be and very often were living lives of austerity. While, quote, the most misbehaving caste is that of the Shudra, 
who would actually rise up and become rulers. So widespread was this phenomenon of shudra militarization and mobility that it's not inaccurate to say that a very large minority and perhaps even a majority of recorded Indian kings have origins in the quote-unquote lowest varna. That flies in the face of a whole idea of a pyramid of social organization in many ways, a rigid pyramid where there's a group at the bottom that is going to be there for all of time. So what's going on there? In terms of like the Shudravarna, it's the biggest in India. Um, and you'll see across Indian history, especially towards the South, a lot of these Shudravarnas, they will, you know, militarize or they gain land. You know, many of these people are peasants or farmers or, you know, sometimes they'll be in I don't know, other occupancies, but especially those ones that are agricultural and farmers because now they have land and with land, you know, they start accumulating power. Um, they have pools that eventually become, you know, swords and stuff and they get more and more land. And eventually it's basically like, okay, you know, I have land, I have power. I am a king, you know, at the end of the day, and they will have other castes acknowledge this. And it's, it's not really all that controversial. There are some controversial times where say certain Brahmins wouldn't acknowledge them. Shivaji is a very famous example, but. I mean, he did what every other king would do. He found another Brahmin who would. So you see this across Indian history. Um, even, I believe, Janakya notes, I think the Nandas, yeah, the Nandas or the Mauryans, one of the two, had some origins within the Shudra uh, Varna. This is around, like, I don't know, 300, 400 BC. Um, I think in, I believe it was either the Turks or Chinese, I've seen an account of certain kings in India where they would be very open about the Shudravarna. Um, they wouldn't really be ashamed of it. I think there's a Telangana, a, a king from one of the Telugu states that very proudly proclaims that, you know, we come from the feet of Lord Vishnu and we are proud that we do. And, you know, we are powerful. This is our kingdom. So, even their self-image, it's very, it's very interesting. It contrasts a lot with uh, how critical caste theories, you know, envision this Borshashukta and, you know, this caste pyramid. Now, well, you pointed out that ascetic aspect of Brahmins. This is another thing that's also noted by um, foreigners. And these primary accounts are very valuable because, like I said, you have a huge debate within Hindu Shastras about um, you know, society and stuff, but these foreign accounts really tell you what it is. And the Greeks, they compared the lives of Brahmins to Spartans. And everyone knows what Spartan discipline is, how their lifestyles were. And they have multiple, um, you know, accounts of them living a super rigid, very aesthetic lifestyle with very little possessions. It's just a life that someone in power would not really want. You know, this is a very tough life. So this image of like, they'll always do this cartoon of like this very fat Brahmin uh, who, you know, is dominating other people. That's not really how Indian society was. Brahmins and a lot of upper caste, they had expectations that if they didn't fulfill, they would have consequences. You know, they would be outcast from their caste. Uh, they wouldn't be able to participate in society. In many cases, it was not as easy 
to be upper caste as it was, say, a Shudra. And you'll see this in Hindu scriptures too. There's punishments laid out for uh, upper caste or dvijas who, who don't fulfill their duties. Now, as society progresses, you know, sometimes new scriptures come up and there's loophole, they add loopholes. This is basically what happened in India. And th this has happened across all Varnas. The reason I just say the Shudras misbehave the most is because they probably took the most various occupations. Some of them were teachers, some of them were medicine men, some of them were kings, some of them were blacksmiths, laborers. So they had a, the whole gambit of societal occupations in many cases. So yeah, th this is the this is the heterodoxy, this is the heterogeneity of caste. And I think one theme to look at is it started very fluid. It was fluid for most of society or for most of history, but really did start calcifying later on. And I think it, you brought it up before the British area, the British era and how they kind of bureaucratized caste. And they, they used a method to um, basically pick caste against each other. So sometimes they would do land reform and they would, uh, take land away from one caste and give it to another, or they would hire in a caste-based manner in terms of their armies, and they would pit these groups against each other. So, I think his name is Ajay Varghese. I think he's a professor, and he had a uh, study. Um, maybe you could put it in the show notes. I'll try to send it to you about areas that were that had more princely state control versus direct British Raj control during uh, the British Empire and the effects today. And one of the big effects of British Raj control is in those areas, we see higher rates of caste violence. And I thought that was very interesting. It kind of buttresses this point about, you know, the British making caste in these areas a very rigid and antagonistic thing between uh, different castes. So. Yeah, t today, though, I, I guess to wrap this up, I think one thing to make a point that's very opposite of, you know, critical caste theory is we're seeing a lot more mixing in India, uh, especially these urban Zoomers or urbanity in general. It seems to induce a lot of caste mixing and the killing of endogamy in many cases. One of the funniest examples of this is many times critical caste theories, they will like rail against, you know, Hindutva and Hindu nationalism. The state most infamous for this type of ideology, Gujarat, it has the highest rates of uh, inter-caste marriage amongst Hindu-majority states. And it's only going to get more and more. Um, I think if you talk to young Indians, especially the, like the city goers, like I said, and even now tier two cities and towns, this identity is less important for them. They're going up, I guess, this maybe hierarchy of identities, seeing themselves as either more Indian or the linguistic group or... Um, Hindu or whatever. And I guess, I mean, they're caste and other religions too. So yeah, Muslim, Christian, all that. So we see a future with less caste, but we see critical caste theorists trying to make caste more of a thing, especially abroad. But that's, I think that the broad part is a whole nother <laughs> conversation. I guess I'll end it at that. Yeah, that's a good place to end it. And that is another conversation. Maybe we should record a second episode. We'll schedule some time because that is a very good one. Where can people... Final thing, where can people find your work? Yeah, you could uh, find me at theemissary.co or theemissaryco at Twitter and Instagram. 
and also the emissary on Substack, which is the emissary.substack.com. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.